The following message is a teaching by Dr. Jason DeRoshi, professor of Old Testament and Biblical Theology at Bethlehem College and Seminary in Minneapolis, Minnesota. You can find more information about Jason at www.jasonderoshi.com. Well, <laughs> it truly is a joy for me. Um, It's a joy to have people like Scott in the class for so long. It's a joy that we have to add more seats in the back and push seats over to the side. It's it's a joy that Christ continues to meet us, ministering to needs through His Word. And it's a joy that I've gotten to do this for 11 years. So, thank you. Lord willing, next year, same bat time, same bat channel. (laughs) And we'll be back in Isaiah. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for laughter. Thank you that we are united in Christ. We have fellowship with one another. Thank you that when we confess our sins, you're faithful and just to forgive us. Thank you that Christ is the covenant into whom we stand, by whom we are reconciled to you, from whom we are then commissioned. Thank you that the power that was at work in him is now in work in us. Thank you that he is greater than he who is in the world. Thank you that he is light. And in our identification with him, we become lights. I pray that we would not hide our light under a basket, but that it would shine. Thank you for Isaiah, that you spoke to him between 740 and 700 B.C. about things that could encourage our heart 2,700 years later. Thank you that your word is living and active, that it can pierce into the core of our being, giving us hope, confronting sin, and increasing our taste, increasing our sight of what is beautiful. Meet us now, I pray. Open your word to us. Through Christ I ask. Amen. Isaiah 49 is where we're at today. Isaiah 49, please turn in your Bibles there. Last week we began this second, it's called a servant song, and it's been tagged that, there's four of them in this book, four extended poems that mention the servant that are focused on not the servant nation, but the servant king. The spirit-empowered king that we focused on at the first half of the book is tagged the servant, and this is a book ultimately about him, the servant savior who comes and proclaims good news. Isaiah 49, last week we covered verses 1 through 7, I'm going to read 1 through 13. 
Listen to me, O coastlands. Give attention, you peoples from afar. The servant is talking. This is an autobiographical expression. The Lord called me from the womb, from the body of my mother. He named my name. He made my mouth like a sharp sword. In the shadow of his hand, he hid me. He made me a polished arrow in his quiver. He hid me away. He said to me, you are my servant, Israel, in whom I will be glorified. But I said, I've labored in vain. I've spent my strength for nothing in vanity. Yet surely my right is with the Lord and my recompense with my God. And now the Lord says, He who formed me from the womb to be his servant, to bring, back, to bring Jacob back to him, and that Israel might be gathered to him, for I am honored in the eyes of the Lord, and my God has become my strength. He says, It is too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserved of Israel. I will make you as a light for the nations, that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. I'll pause there. That's the first six verses. We've got two units here. It begins with a command, listen, and the ones who are supposed to listen are those at the farthest reaches of the globe in the coastlands. And then, if you look at verse 13, there's a final command, sing, sing. And it's not just the coastlands, he doesn't stop there, he goes universal. Sing, O heavens, and exult, O earth. Break forth, O mountains, into singing. Why? For the Lord has comforted His people and will have compassion on His afflicted. So, that's the frame. And up front, he, He's calling, listen, hear. But not just hear, hear in a way that changes you, that, that moves you to surrender all that's in your heart to this servant king. So it's a call to receive the servant king's mission, and if you receive it, it will move you to fulfill the final, final commandment. So in these first six verses, I'm seeing a, a declaration of what the servant's mission is. So look again at verse 3. He said to me, the Lord said to me, says this servant, you're my servant, and then he gives him his name, Israel in whom I will be glorified. In this person that God has set apart, who is a servant of the Lord. He's a follower of the Lord. He's working for the ends of the Lord. In the life of this person, God will be made much of. Like a telescope magnifies a distant moon that in our eyes looks so small, but when we look through the telescope, He's made that that planet is made massive. So too, that's what this servant's going to do for the sake of God. He's going to glorify Him, display Him as weighty, honor the Lord. So whatever the the servant does is not ultimately going to pull glory away from God. It's going to magnify that glory in big ways. This servant's name is Israel, and then it's to this same servant that God says, verse 6, it's too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserved of Israel. So just look at that. Verse 3 said the servant's name was Israel. Verse 6 says the mission of Israel is to bring back Israel. And that's why I suggested that verse 3 is talking about the servant a person. Whereas verse 6, when it mentions Israel, 
It's talking about Israel, the nation. Verse 3 is Israel, a person who is a king representing the many. And verse 6 says that that individual king who himself bears the complete identity of the people will then go and redeem the people. But it's too light a thing that he would just restore the 12 exiled tribes of Israel. It says, I will make you as a light for the nations. A people living in darkness have seen a great light. Upon Galilee of the Gentiles, Isaiah chapter 9, a light is dawned. Jesus comes in in John chapter 8 saying, I am the light of the world. That's what he does. He, he brings light where there's been shadow. And one day there will be no more shadows. All there will be is light. That light will come to the nations and the light by its very nature is God's salvation. And today we're going to see that that salvation is not just deliverance from physical bondage like the first exodus was. The first exodus was just enslavement to Pharaoh. Most of Israel, we're told, had hard hearts, not soft hearts. I mean, it was only at Mount Sinai that the entire population turns and starts worshiping a golden calf. Even before that, they start groaning, moaning. Oh, that we could be back in Egypt. And then they get to the promised land. They send in their 12 spies. Ten of them come back. The giants are too big. And the majority of the people follow them. And God says, how long will you not believe? So the majority of Israel was captured in a prison, enslaved under Pharaoh, but they were also enslaved to a greater serpent. Their hearts were bound up, and when God delivered them through the Exodus, it didn't change their hearts. They continued enslaved to sin. When this Savior shows up and works as a better, bigger Exodus, He's not only changing the pattern of exile now in Babylon, He's going to go all the way to the core and save souls, bringing reconciliation between God and man. So today we're going to go in and start right here, it's a second unit that begins, as you see in verse 7, thus says the Lord. And the same person is talking, I believe it's this servant, king, that, I, that, we, that we now know of as Jesus. He's, he's the one who's talking in first person and telling us more about his mission. So we're going to move from God clarifying how some rulers are going to receive His mission to a greater description, not just a declaration, but a greater description of that mission leading us to the point of the praise. So we begin in verse 7. God clarifies how some rulers will receive the servant's mission. The text says, Thus says the Lord... And be, the, the way that I know that the same person is talking is because in verse 6, God talked to him and said, it's too light a thing that you 
should be my servant to raise up Jacob. And that same singular you shows up at the very end of the quotation in my ESV. It's the last word of verse 7. God's still talking to the same servant, the you. So let's read it. The Redeemer, that is Yahweh, and then it unpacks in this context, when we, when we hear Yahweh be thinking of Him as the Redeemer of Israel. Now the ESV adds an and here, but it's not in the Hebrew text. It just says in the Hebrew text, the Redeemer of Israel, comma, the Holy One. Or sorry, His Holy One. And that raises a question in my mind. It makes me wonder, which Israel is he talking about? We know that in verse 6, Israel was the nation, but in verse 3, Israel is the person. In verse 6, it's very clear that Israel, the nation, needs to be redeemed. And that's the mission of Israel, the person. The servant, royal king, Israel, Jesus, will, will enter in and redeem the nation. But we know that He will only accomplish that through His own wounding. His full identification with Israel will require Him bearing the sin, bearing the punishment that Israel as a nation was to endure. And so here, God actually calls, He declares Himself to be Yahweh, the Redeemer of Israel, His Holy One. And it makes me wonder if, if this is already, is, is Israel the nation God's Holy One? Or is it the person who's the Holy One? And it's setting us up, I think, to anticipate the possibility that Israel the person will only redeem Israel the nation through His own suffering. Indeed, He will need to be redeemed by the power of God. We move on. Not only do we get the speaker, the Lord, who will redeem Israel, His Holy One, now we get to whom He's speaking. Notice how it's unpacked here. Thus says the Lord to one deeply despised, abhorred by the nation, the servant of rulers. So once again, he's called the servant. But here he's not the servant of the Lord directly. Now he's actually serving rulers. And if we look at verse 6, we can get a sense for how that would be. That the very one who is obeying his father in every way, what that is going to require is that he works in a way that ministers to and upholds and helps everyone else. He's a servant of others. He didn't come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. It says, he himself will be deeply despised, abhorred by the nation. And that's what tells me, once again, we're not talking about the nation here. Thus says the Lord, the Redeemer of Israel, to one deeply despised. He's not talking about the nation because this one that he's talking to is actually abhorred by the nation. He's distinct from the nation. It's the same person that we were talking about before. The very means by which he will redeem the many is through his own pain. 
We saw up in verse 4, I've labored in vain. I've spent my strength for nothing in vanity. He's, he's engaged in his mission, and yet there's a sense in which he feels like it's going nowhere. Why? Because everyone that he encounters despises him, and the entire nation that he's been sent to abhors him. This term despised only shows up one other time in the book, and it's going to be in Isaiah 53. We'll look at that in just a second. I'm just looking at where my slides are going. Israel the nation hates Israel the royal servant, here we go. He, Isaiah 53, he was despised and rejected by man. A man of sorrows, acquainted with grief, as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised. Two times. And we esteemed him not. He was wounded for our transgressions, bruised for our iniquities, Isaiah will go on to say. The chastisement that brought us peace was upon Him, and by His wounds we are healed. This is the one to whom the Lord is talking. It says that He'll be a servant of rulers. Look at how Isaiah 52 begins. So Isaiah 52, 13 is where actually the song that we, we think of Isaiah 53, oh, that's the suffering servant text. But the servant text actually starts in Isaiah 52, 13, right at the end of the chapter. And here's where it begins. Behold my servant, key word, he shall act wisely. He'll be high and lifted up. Now that's a ambiguous term, a big ambiguous phrase. Exalted as king. Or exalted as substitutionary sacrifice. He'll be high and lifted up. He'll be exalted. As many were astonished at you, his appearance was so marred beyond human resemblance and his form beyond that of the children of mankind, so shall he sprinkle many nations. When we get there next year, Lord willing, next fall, when we get to this text, This sprinkling, I believe, is sacrificial image, imagery. He is, the sac- he is the sacrifice. By His blood, everything in the tabernacle, in the temple, was cleansed by the blood of the substitute. It would go through and the priest would sprinkle that blood. Similarly, he, that same blood was sprinkled on all the congregation. And it consecrated them as a priest's as a a priestly nation to the Lord. Now it's all the nations that are being sprinkled, and I think it's anticipating where the rest of this text is going. It's about atonement. It's about finding ourselves made right with God. Kings shall shut their mouths because of Him, for that which has not been told them they now see. In a book where... All of Israel, the nation, is described as blind, even though they have eyes. Now the kings of the world have eyes to see. They actually see Him for who He is. And that which they haven't heard, they understand. Paul's going to cite this final text out of the Greek translation. He's going to cite it in Romans 15. 
I make it my ambition to preach the gospel. Using the same word that we saw in Isaiah 40, the same word that we'll see in Isaiah 52 and in Isaiah 61, to preach the gospel. I make it my ambition to preach the gospel, not where Christ has already been named, lest I build on someone else's foundation. Paul was driven, a certain kind of missionary, into the pioneer lands where no one else had gone. And when he pushes himself in that way, what's on his mind is Isaiah 52. Those who have never been told of him will see. Those who have never heard will understand. And he cites that text. Brother John. Um. So the question is, see if I can capture it right, is there any support that Israel the nation was ever called to convert the nations? Is that, if that's what we mean by light, bringing salvation to the nations. And I do not think Israel the nation was ever called to convert the nations. They were waiting for the day when the perfect sun would come. And when he would rise, then there would be global conversion. Israel was, however, called to be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. And the question at hand is, what does this light language mean? Priestly language is about mediation. It's also about proclamation. But Israel's role as priests, as I understand it, was a come and see type role. Where God was set up at the temple in the middle of their land, in a physical temple with a manifest presence that people could have seen. There was a glory cloud there, a cloud with a, that glowed at night. And the nations would come in like the Queen of Sheba. And Israel was to be living for God perfectly. They were supposed to be obeying His voice, honoring Him in their daily living. And in that context, calling nations, people like Ruth the Moabitess, Rahab the Canaanite, Uriah the Hittite, they all become Israelites. They come in and the... The challenge is, though, finding a text where Israel just, where it's not the come and see type priesthood, but a go and tell type priesthood. In the New Testament, it seems that we have both go and tell and come and see. We have come and see in that we have become a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, a, a royal priesthood. Why? That we may proclaim the excellencies of Him who called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. So there's where light language does show up, and it's in the context of a priesthood, and we're proclaiming. And I think that's what Israel was supposed to do. But 
I would say that's not equal to the Great Commission of actually going out and calling people in distinctive, unique ways, potentially at a later date, I can go in and unpack further how I'm understanding missions just work its way through the Bible. But what I can say is that Isaiah, at this point in his text, he sees the coming of the servant king and all of a sudden global focus. It's in this context that Abraham moves from being a father of a nation to a father of a multitude of nations. And it's only when this servant king shows up. Up until this point, Ruth the Moabitess, uh, Rahab the Canaanite, and Uriah the Hittite become Israelites. And with that, have to follow the law of Moses. With the coming of Christ, there's no more law of Moses. He makes the first covenant obsolete in order to establish the second. We move beyond the guardian to now the age of faith. And now that faith has come, we're no longer under the guardian, says Paul. And with that is a, um, an expansion of a global focus, a global salvation. And this makes sense because only in Jesus does good news come. Only in Jesus does the curse get abolished and light actually be displayed. Israel the nation is not the obedient son. Only Israel the person is the obedient son who secures the blessing for the world. And Israel, I think, understood that. So they're longing for this day when the king would come and all of a sudden missions would go global. Great question. So Paul is looking at this text Kings shall shut their mouths because of him, for that which has not been told them they see. And I'm saying, when I look at this text, kings shall see and arise, verse 7. Princes will actually lie prostrate before this Lord, Yahweh, because of what he's doing through his chosen son, this chosen person. They'll lie prostrate because of the Lord who is faithful, the Holy One of Israel who has chosen you. So if I'm right, that at the beginning of verse 7, the Redeemer of Israel, that that Israel there is actually not the nation but the person, His Holy One, then God calls Himself the Holy One at the end of the verse, and therefore the servant person is being identified. He's the Holy One. It's God's Holy One is the servant person king. And then Yahweh Himself is the Holy One. And it's, it's drawing together the identities, the makeup. And we, it's not the first time we've seen this in the book. In Isaiah 7.14, He was called Emmanuel, God with us. In His own person, God shows up. When I meet Jesus, I meet God. Or Isaiah 9, 6, his name will be Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. The Spirit of the Lord will rest on him. And as, as if he's a, move, he's a movable temple, wherever he goes, the Spirit of the Lord is just right there. That's how we've seen this 
individual displayed thus far. And that's how I'm seeing him unpacked here. Holy one, holy one. He's chosen this servant. In verse 8, we get another speech. Thus says the Lord. So we've had the first statement in 49, 1 through 6. Now we get a further description of this servant's mission. And this is awesome as we begin to consider all that Jesus is for us. Thus says the Lord, in a time of favor, I have answered you. Past tense, and the you is singular. Just like the you at the end of verse 7, just like the you in the beginning of verse 6. I'm seeing all this to be the same person. God is addressing His servant king, whom we know of as Jesus. And he starts out by saying, in a time of favor, I have answered you. But what this person represents is Israel. Israel as a nation that is far from God, that is blind, that has been rebellious. They're they're in exile. And into their exile, into their curse, this one has shown up fully identifying himself with them. So for the nation, this is favor. And that favor comes in the declaration, this is my son in whom I am well pleased. That is what characterizes the life of Christ who's representing the nation. And if you're in him, that pleasure gets spread out to all who are in Christ. In the time of favor, I have answered you in a day of salvation. Now, the ESV has, I have helped you. But the tense actually changes here, and it's the same uh, verbal form that we see in the very next line, I will keep you. So what I'm seeing at the beginning of verse 8 is, I have answered you in the past. In a day of salvation, I will help you. And then he'll do it again. I will keep and give you. And then in verse 11, I will make all my mountains a road. God's going to do something in the future with respect to the servant, three different things. He's going to help him, he's going to keep and give him, and he's going to make mountains a road. So, considering initial fulfillment, God has preserved a remnant of his people. He wouldn't let Israel be destroyed in exile. So that there was nothing left. He even brought them back to the land. Now Isaiah is all before this. When Isaiah comes on the scene, the northern kingdom is just getting ready to go into exile. The southern kingdom isn't going to be in exile for another 150 years. But Isaiah is always talking with his eye to the future. He's a seer. That's what the prophets are called. He's able to see things no one else can see, including the future and including what's inside of your heart and my heart. He's able to look as a prophet and identify what's going on in the present, what's going on in the future. And he sees what's in the future and it's exile, but beyond exile is a redeemer. And through the exile, God will destroy His people, but He will not waste them away so that there's none left. Indeed, He'll bring them back, establish them in Jerusalem, in the land, because it's from there that Isaiah's partner, Micah, both of them 
preaching at the exact same time, Micah says, yeah, the king's going to come from Bethlehem, which means they can't all stay up in Babylon. They've got to be able to come back and, and establish themselves in the land because the king has to be born in this land. And he's going to grow. So, so there's been a remnant that's been preserved. God has helped them in a time of favor. He's preserved them. But then it's, it seems to me that there's this anticipation of God's future faithfulness in the life of His Messiah so that it can say, I will help you. I will help you. I will be all that you need through the garden all the way to the cross. Not my will, yours be done. In perfect reliance on His Father. Keep persevering on behalf of you and me. Perfect love with the aid of a perfect Father. Carrying Him all the way. In a day of salvation, I have helped you. Now Paul takes this text, now this is a lot of words, but the blue part is a quotation of our very passage. And one of the things that we're increasingly going to see, and I've mentioned this before, is that Jesus is the servant, and after Isaiah 53, he produces servants. So from Isaiah 40 to 53, the term servant shows up only in the singular 20 times. And it refers to both the servant nation and the servant person. But in Isaiah 53, right after the substitutionary atonement, when what's driving him is the joy set before him, that he might see his offspring, what's going to happen on the other side of the cross is that he's going to be able to see something. Oh yes, he will die, offering himself as a guilt offering, but he will see something on the other side of it, meaning he will raise from the dead, and what he will see is an offspring that has been birthed from what he did at the cross. And all of those offspring, from Isaiah 54 to 66, 11 more times the term servant is going to show up, always in the plural, never in the singular. The singular servant person is going to die on behalf of the singular servant nation, but it's too light a thing that he would just redeem them. He will also die on behalf of all the world, and he will produce servants, plural. Now with that framework, what is given as a mission for the Messiah becomes the mission of his people. If you are in him, you not only receive salvation, you gain a call to take up where he has after His ascension, He sends us His Spirit and He continues to work through His people in power, fulfilling His mission. Notice how Paul's talking. If anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. Over and over again in Isaiah, new creation is the, is the language. We see it in Isaiah 42.9, 43.19, 48.6, 65.17, 66.22. God's doing a new thing. He's going to make a new heavens and a new earth, new creation. And Paul's saying it's already started in our lives. If you're in Jesus, a new thing has begun. The future has been brought into the present. And so we get the overlap of the ages. The age of darkness and Adam is still there, but Christ has come in and, and brought the future into the present. The new creation is overcoming the original creation. 
If you're in Christ, you're a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this new creation stuff that Isaiah talked about is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. God captures us and then calls us to carry on his mission. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors of him, for him, for Christ. God making his appeal through us. So therefore, Corinthians, as I fulfill my mission, which was at first Christ's mission, I implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God, working together with him. So Christ is still working, doing his servant-saving work. And he's doing it through his people that he's established. Then... We appeal to you not to receive the grace of God in vain. For he says, in a favorable time, in a time of favor, ESV, I listened to you. In a day of salvation, I have helped you. From Isaiah 49.8. Behold, now is the favorable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. In the original context, I think this is talking about God's helping his Messiah. But we are the body of Christ. And now Paul says what was true of the Messiah is true for us, and right now is his time when he's delivering us. Right now is the time when he is saving us, helping us in the midst of our own afflictions, just as he was with Christ all the way through the cross. Notice where Paul goes. Right now is the time of salvation. We put no obstacle in anyone's way so that no fault may be found with our ministry. But as servants of God, hear that? He is one of the many that have been birthed from the original servant. After he's already echoed Isaiah in the new creation. We are servants of God. We commend ourselves in every way by great endurance in afflictions, hardships, calamities, beatings, imprisonments, riots, labors, sleepless nights, hunger, and then he continues the list on for three more verses. So are you here today? Afflictions. Are you here today? Hardships, calamities. This is the journey of every believer, and today is the day of salvation. What that means is this is not just about spiritual deliverance. This is about gaining an awareness of how I can, on rock-solid foundation, live day by day by day with my faith unswerving. The gospel is the power of God for salvation, Paul says. And that's not just conversion. That's about saving me every day from my doubting. Saving me every day from my my discouragement, my depression, my frustration. My questioning, God, why me? Why this hard? Why this long? 
And God's here. Today is the day of salvation. And Paul is reaching back to what God did for Christ and saying he's doing it for all that he purchased as well. And he's doing it today. We keep going. Three purposes. Look with me. So after God says, I will help you, then he says, I will keep you and give you. So I'm going to preserve you through a great challenge that has something to do with being deeply despised and abhorred by the nation. I'm going to keep you, servant king, and I'm going to give you through this great obstacle as a covenant to the people. You yourself, in your entire being, the body and the blood, together will meld and become a covenant. A new covenant. And it will be for the people. You yourself, carrying in your, in your being the very essence of relationship with me. I am your father, you are my son, and as people identify themselves with you, you will be the very covenant that holds us together. And it's going to accomplish three things. Number one, to establish land. Now in the ESV it says the land, the definite article isn't there. It could be a specific, the specific land, it could be earth broadly. What we know is this, I will surely bless you, I will surely multiply your offspring, Abraham, as the stars of the heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore. Notice global impact, father of a multitude of nations. And your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies. Singular. Not Multiple descendants at this point, one specific male descendant will possess the gate of his enemies, meaning that he's gone outside of his own realm to begin to overcome enemy strongholds. And as he does, his own land will be expanding. Land giving rise to lands. And through you, through this person, this offspring, who is a male and singular, through this offspring... The curse will be overcome and all the blessings of God will reach the ends of the earth. And it's related to turf that I believe is claimed in the new heavens and the new earth, ultimately. Isaac, sojourn in this land and I will be with you and I will bless you. What's the land? It's the land of Canaan. For to you and to your offspring I will give these lands. It's not singular anymore. What I'm anticipating to give you is bigger than what I'm, I've originally destined to you. Land will give rise to lands. In Romans 4.13 it says, God promised Abraham the world. I think that's where we're heading. What he's going to do in being a covenant to the people, being a covenant to the people that has now been redefined 
as not just Jews and Gen- not just the Jews, but also including the Gentiles. Not just Israel, the nation that's going to be redeemed. Too little of a thing. No, I'll make you a light to the whole world that my salvation may reach the ends of the earth. That's the people that God is going to make this one servant king a covenant for. And they're going to need a lot bigger turf to apportion the desolate heritages. Isaiah 49, 19, Surely your waste and your desolate places, your devastated land, surely now you will be too narrow for your inhabitants. Those who swallowed you up will be far away. The children of your bereavement will yet say in your ears, This place is too narrow for me. Make room for me to dwell. This is talking about the age of restoration when God fixes all the problems. The people that are going to be in the land are going to say, we don't have enough space. We need more turf. We need you to, you, you've removed our desolation. We need more land. Here's Isaiah 54. Enlarge the place of your tent. Let the curtains of your habitation be stretched out. Notice this is Isaiah 54. In Isaiah 53, the Savior King came in and redeemed He rose from the dead and saw his offspring. Who did they include? Enlarge the place of your tent. Let the curtains of your habitations be stretched out. Don't hold back. Lengthen your cords. Strengthen your stakes. You can just see the tent is getting bigger. For you will spread abroad to the right, to the left. Your offspring will possess the nations. The offspring of the servant king includes the nations. What you want to remember is that Abraham is where the global curse's answer is first addressed. All the world after Adam is under a global curse. The flood, still everyone is under a curse. God doesn't wipe them all out. He preserves Noah and his family. But we're told that still the wickedness of man's heart is the same. Eight people give rise to 70 families in Genesis chapter 10. Then God brings Abraham. And he says, through you, all the world will be blessed. I'll make you into a father of a multitude of nations. Kings will come from you. What you're hoping for is the single king. These are promises given to Abraham. Paul says in Galatians 3, the gospel was preached beforehand to Abraham when it said, through you shall all the families of the earth be blessed. So the oath that God swore to Abraham is bigger than one land, Bigger than one people. In Genesis 22, that promise regarding the offspring possessing the gate of his enemies and through him all the world being blessed, that was given directly to Abraham. So that's what I'm seeing happen. And Isaiah is seeing the fulfillment of all this and focusing it in on now this servant. 
Now let's just look. Let's let's uh, let's go here. I, I just want to see want us to see the last element in the three things that he's going to do to establish the land, to apportion the desolate places, and then verse nine. Even though it's translated as a participle saying, it's, it's the same structure. The third thing that he's to do, to say to the prisoners, come out. To those who are in darkness, appear. And the result will be, they'll feed along the ways on all bare heights shall be their pasture. They shall not hunger or thirst, neither scorching wind nor sun shall strike them. For he who has pity on them will lead them. And by springs of water will guide them. This language of the prisoners. I'll just say, um, I think we're supposed to understand physical prisoners on the one hand. He's going to deliver physical captives, but there's more. And here's why I say there's more. Back in Isaiah 42, this is where we read the the language of the covenant for the peoples for the first time. I will give you, O servant king, as a covenant for the people, a light for the nations. Notice what it says. This light will be for opening up blind eyes. To bring out the prisoners from the dungeon, from the prison, those who sit in darkness. Is this just talking about John the Baptist sitting in prison and saying, I'm still in prison. I wonder if he's the one or not. At the end of Isaiah 42, we read this. My servant nation sees many things but does not observe them. He hears, his ears are open, but he does not hear. The Lord was pleased. Wait, let me just stop right there. Remember, over and over again in Isaiah, we've seen this this language of a spiritual blindness. They have eyes, but they can't see. They have ears, but they're actually not hearing what God is saying. And that's why I think when we begin to talk about the ministry of the servant being to open up blind eyes that the blindness that he's seeking to open is not limited to physical sight, but he's wanting to awaken internal sight. And with that then, if we can say that to open blind eyes here includes the spiritual blindness that we read about here at the end of the chapter, then it would suggest that the prisoners from the dungeon are also spiritual prisoners held captive by the devil. This is a people plundered and looted. They are all of them trapped in holes, hidden in prisons. They've become plunder with none to rescue, spoil with none to say, restore. And Jesus comes in with a ministry to free captives, including those who are in spiritual enslavement at whatever level. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives. Look at how this worked in John 9. Jesus meets a physically blinded man. 
Jesus declares, I am the light of the world. He's talking more than just seeing the sun. He's saying, I want you to see me for who I am as Savior, as Redeemer, as King. He then heals the man so that he can physically see. The Pharisees question this man who identifies Jesus as God's agent of healing power. Who healed you? How how did you change? Originally, he says, I don't know. A man showed up. All I know is that I was blind, but now I can see. They don't believe him. Then his parents show up. Yes, this is our son. They don't want to say it was Jesus because it says they feared that they'd be thrown out of the synagogue. But then the the son just speaks up, caring little about what would happen. He's had something happen, not just externally. He's had something happen internally. He has seen something with so much power. He declares, since the beginning of creation, you go read your book. There is no place in all the Old Testament where anyone has ever given sight when they were blind. If this has happened now, it's not a work of Satan. It is a work of God. And the Pharisees cast him out of the synagogue. Jesus heard that they had cast him out. And having found him, Jesus said, Do you believe in the Son of Man? He answered, who is he, sir, that I may believe in him? Jesus said, you have seen him. He's talking about something deeper than just physical sight. Because the seeing here is going to be equated with believing. You have seen him. And it is he who is speaking to you. I believe. And he worshipped Jesus. And Jesus didn't push back the worship. He received it as if he were God. And, Jesus, and he said, Lord, I believe. Jesus said, for judgment I came into the world, that those who do not see may see. And those who do see may become blind. We have a Jesus who came to bind the strong man. How can someone enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods? The goods of the devil are all kinds of enslaved people in our world. And Jesus comes in and binds up that strong man in order to deliver enslaved souls. I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail. Notice that the gates, this is not defensive, this is offensive. We're heading right into the castle of Mordor. right at the heart of the evil, and it will not prevail. And so it says, I will give you, church, the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. The very one who came to bind the strong man is now equipping his people with this kind of power. This is part of what it means that Christ is the covenant between us and God. To help us Live without enslavement to depression, to bondage, to brokenness, to guilt, and then to be agents to help others be freed from such chains. And the result is this. They shall hunger no more. 
neither thirst anymore. The sun shall not strike them, nor any scorching heat. That's exactly what we're reading here in verse 10. The lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd. He will guide them to springs of living water. God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. So there's an already and not yetness, but this is the ultimate end. And Isaiah is just bringing it all together. Jesus is all of this for us. And we just want to recognize today, today is the day of salvation for you and for me, for freedom, for life, all the while hoping when it will all, all darkness and all bondage will be broken. Lynn? It's just like he is. You got it. This is how he opened his ministry. He's right there in the synagogue in Nazareth saying, this is what I've come to do. Today, these words are fulfilled in your hearing. Thank you, Lynn. Let's pray. Father, thank you that you are this kind of a God, that you've sent this kind of a servant, Savior, Magnify Jesus through us. Set our hope on Him. Bring greater levels of freedom in our own lives and help us be agents of such grace in the lives of others. For the glory of Christ we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from the ministry of Dr. Jason DeRoshi, professor of Old Testament and Biblical Theology at Bethlehem College and Seminary in Minneapolis, Minnesota. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter their content in any way without written permission from Jason DeRoshi. For more information on Bethlehem College and Seminary, we invite you to visit online at www.bcsmn.edu. For more information on Dr. DeRoshi, visit online at www.jasonderoshi.com. Proclaiming the Kingdom and treasuring a God who reigns, saves, and satisfies through covenant for His glory in Christ.